This is episode 128, and I'm your host, Miguel. Today in the podcast, we're going to listen to a reading of a book by the name of Recovery Dharma. The reading is done by Graham of the Gramerica podcast. Gramerica podcast is two guys, uh, Canadian guys, Graham and Darren, who are really entertaining, and it's one of my favorite podcasts. They just talk about everything under the sun, but as they have fun and joke around, they have really great guests and really great teachings. And I highly recommend you subscribing to the Grimerica podcast. So this, again, is a reading by Graham of This Recovery Dharma, which is applying Buddhist principles and teachings to help recover from drug addictions or really any issue that you're going through in life. You, you might be just sailing smoothly and everything's going great and give this a listen and it's going to just elevate where you are. So it it's... Really, I highly recommend giving this a good listen. Again, this might not be for everybody because it kind of caters more towards addiction and recovery, but I feel really could basically edify anybody that's looking to elevate their station in life, spiritually, mentally, health-wise, however. This is also free online at recoverydharma.org, so you can give it a listen there, and I would like for you to go over to that website and support them because this is some really great work that they're putting out. What this Recovery Dharma book is doing is, like I said, it's applying the Buddhist principles to recovery from addiction and through uh, hard times that somebody might be going through in life. And as we all know what uh, the Buddhist teachings are, you have the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Some of you might know this, but for those of you who don't, this, this is the teaching. So the Four Noble Truths are, I suffer. The Second Noble Truth is, I suffer as a result of attachment and the word suffer is the word dukkha to get technical Uh, the third noble truth is there's a way out of this suffering out of this dukkha and the fourth noble truth is the way out of this dukkha or suffering is through the eightfold path and the eightfold path is right thinking right speech right action so on graham is going to get into the details of of this teaching which he does masterfully and again, please support this Recovery Dharma book. They're, like I mentioned, their website in this, it's recoverydharma.org. And the last thing that I'm going to leave you with is you might not be in a position where you have any addictions or anything immediate that you're going through, but you may know someone or have a friend. So kind of tuck this episode away, even if you want to throw it on a thumb drive or just save the website because you might come across somebody that could really benefit from, from this teaching. But I'm going to repeat again. The teaching on this is so solid that you can just be sailing along just fine and everything is going well. And this will, by listening to this, will absolutely elevate your life. And I would recommend listening to this a couple of times through, even if you are familiar with the Buddhist principles and teachings. This is really a gift for for everyone to just benefit from and listen to. And again, so support recoverydharma.org. It'll be in two parts. It's going to be approximately an hour and 15 minutes each segment. So let's get into it. And again, this is a fair use creative commons episode. And like I said, let's get into it. Just one other last quick note on this. If you go to my episode of this podcast, Alpha Male Buddhist Podcast, to my episode 34, there's a reading of a book by the name of the Dharmapada, which are the words of Buddha directly. A lot of Buddhist teachings, they have really voluminous books and a lot of texts and on and on and on talking about the Buddha. But the Dharmapada is Buddha's actual words 
It was written in Sanskrit, and they literally wrote his teaching down verbatim as he spoke it. So the spelling of that is the D-H-A-M-M-A-P-A-D-A. It's about an hour and 50 minutes. That's episode 34. If you're getting edification from this, I suggest you go to my episode 34. Recovery Dharma. Using Buddhist practice and principles to end the suffering of addiction. Preface. Once we make a decision to recover from addiction, to substances, habits, people, whatever, it can be scary. The feeling is often one of loss and loneliness, because recovery can shake our sense of identity, our our idea of who we are. Who will I be if I let my addiction go? Once we make a decision to recover from addiction, to substances, habits, people, whatever, it can be scary. The feeling is often one of loss and loneliness, because recovery can shake our sense of identity, of who we are, and our idea of who we are. Who will I be if I let my addiction go? Change can be hard to face, even if we know we're letting go of something that's a danger to us. For many of us, the first and most significant challenge was finding a safe and stable place to begin healing. This is a book about using Buddhist practices and principles to recover from addiction, but you don't need to become a Buddhist to benefit from this program. One of the most revolutionary things the Buddha taught was that the mind is not only the source of great suffering due to craving, greed, anger, and confusion, but the cure for that suffering as well. So what we're doing is using an ancient, proven way to literally change our minds. And we're choosing to trust in our own potential for wisdom and compassion for others and ourselves. What you have in your hands is a collaboration from many members of our community. It's intended to be a friendly guide for those new to this path as well as long-term practitioners. It's structured around what we are sometimes called the three jewels of Buddhism. The Buddha, the potential for our own awakening and the goal of the path, the Dharma, how we get there, and the Sangha, who we travel with. We'll share how we've used this program to recover from addiction and the ways we've made it our own. Not as a one-size-fits-all approach, but as a dynamic set of tools and techniques that anyone can use to find relief from the suffering of addiction. Introduction The word Dharma doesn't have a single English meaning. It's a word in an ancient language called Sanskrit, and it can be translated as truth, phenomena, or the nature of things. When it's capitalized, the word Dharma usually means the teachings of the Buddha and the practices based on those teachings. The Buddha knew that all human beings, to one degree or another, struggle with craving, the powerful, sometimes blinding desire to change our thoughts, feelings, and circumstances. Those of us who've experienced addiction have been more driven to use substances or behaviors to do this, but the underlying craving is the same. And even though the Buddha didn't talk specifically about addiction, he understood the obsessive nature of the human mind. He understood our attachment to pleasure and aversion to pain. He understood the extreme lengths we can sometimes go, chasing what we want to feel and running away from the feelings we fear. And he found a solution. This book describes a way to free ourselves from the suffering of addiction using Buddhist practices and principles. 
This program leads to recovery from addiction to substances like alcohol and drugs, and also from what we refer to as process addictions. We can also become addicted to sex, gambling, technology, work, codependence, shopping, food, media, self-harm, lying, stealing, obsessive worrying. This is a path to freedom from any repetitive and habitual behavior that causes suffering. Many of us who have found our way here might be new to Buddhism. There are unfamiliar words, concepts, and ways of looking at the world. It can be intimidating and uncomfortable to sit in a meeting with people throwing around words like Dharma, Karma, Sangha, and Buddha. If you have felt this way, you're not alone. The purpose of this book is to lay out our path and practice in a clear and simple way that can be of use to people who are brand new to recovery and to Buddhism, as well as those who, with some experience. It describes the original Buddhist teachings to show where our program comes from. It introduces the essence of Buddhism basic teachings, the Four Noble Truths, in a way that shows how practicing the Eightfold Path is a pragmatic toolkit for dealing with the challenges of both early and long-term recovery. This is a renunciation-based program. Regardless of the type of addiction we identify with, all of our members commit to a basic abstinence from the substance or behavior. For those of us whose addiction involve things like food and technology from which complete abstinence may not be possible, renunciation will mean something different. Based on thoughtful boundaries and intentions in our behaviors. For some of us, abstinence from things like obsessive sexual behavior or compulsively seeking out love and relationships may be necessary as we work to understand and find meaningful boundaries. Many of us have found after renouncing our primary addiction for a period of time, other harmful behaviors and process addictions become apparent in our lives. But rather than getting discouraged, we found that we can also meet those behaviors with compassion and patient investigation. We believe recovery is a lifelong, holistic process of peeling back layers of habits and conditioned behaviors to find our own, sometimes hidden, potential for awakening. Our program is peer-led. We don't follow any one teacher or leader. We support each other as partners walking the path of recovery together. This is not a program based in dogma or religion, but in finding the truth for ourselves. This is wisdom that has worked for us, but it is not the only path. It is fully compatible with other spiritual paths and programs of recovery. We know from our own experience that true recovery is only possible with the intention of radical honesty, understanding, awareness, and integrity, and we trust you to discover your own path. We believe this program can help you do just that. Ours is a program that asks us to never stop growing. It asks us to own our choices and be responsible for our own healing. It's based on kindness, generosity, forgiveness, and deep compassion. We do not rely on tools of shame and fear as motivation. We know these haven't worked in our own individual pasts and have often created more struggle and suffering through relapse and discouragement. The courage it takes to recover from addiction is ultimately courage of the heart, and we aim to support each other as we commit to this brave work. Many of us have spent our lives beating ourselves up. We renounce violence and doing harm, including the harm and violence we do to ourselves. We believe in the healing power of forgiveness. 
We put our trust in our own potential to awaken and recover in the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha and in the people we meet and connect with in meetings and throughout our journey in recovery. The truth is that we can never truly escape the circumstances and conditions that are a part of the human condition. We've tried that already, through drugs and alcohol, through sex and codependency, through gambling and technology, through work and shopping, through food or the restriction of food, through obsession and the futile attempts to control our experiences and feelings. And we're here because we realized it didn't work. This is a program that asks us to recognize and accept that some pain and disappointment will always be present, to investigate the unskillful ways we have dealt with that pain in the past, and to develop a habit of understanding, compassion, and mercy, mercy towards our pain, the pain of others, and the pain we have caused others due to our ignorance and confusion. This is a program that asks us to recognize and accept that some pain and disappointment will always be present, to investigate the unskillful ways we have dealt with that pain in the past, and to develop a habit of understanding, compassion, and mercy towards our own pain, the pain of others, and the pain we have caused others due to our ignorance and confusion. That acceptance is what brings freedom from the suffering that made our pain unbearable. This book is only an introduction to the path that can bring liberation and freedom from the cycle of suffering created by addiction. The intention, and the hope, is that every person on the path will be empowered to make it their own. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. Where to begin? So what is the program? At its heart, it's made up of three interwined aspects. First, we come to understand the Four Noble Truths and use them as a guide for our own path of recovery. This program doesn't ask us to believe in anything other than our own potential to wake up. Just allowing ourselves to believe that it's possible, or even that it might be possible. We begin to believe that our own efforts will make a difference. This is the realization that there is a way to recover, and then the decision to start that process. As we learn about the Four Noble Truths, including the Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering caused by addiction, we put these principles into practice in our lives. This book includes an introduction to these truths, and there are many ways to continue studying them. The Eightfold Path is a guide to a non-harming way of being in the world. It's not just a philosophy, but a plan of action. Meditation is an essential part of the program. This book has some basic instructions so you can start right away. Most of us have found it very helpful to attend meetings that include an opportunity to practice meditation with others. A key to this program is establishing a regular meditation practice in and outside of meetings. This will help us begin the process of investigating our own minds, our reactivity, and behavior. We look deeply at the nature and causes of our suffering so we can find a path to freedom that's based on authentic self-knowledge. The following chapters talk about these three aspects of the program, the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, as a way of developing the wisdom, ethical conduct, and spiritual practice that we have found leads to recovery. We hope that people and groups will use this book in ways that are useful for their own processes of recovery. We offer some suggestions in that spirit, 
You're invited to take what works for you and leave the rest. At the end of each section are a series of questions to explore. These inquiries can be used as part of a formal process of self-investigation with a mentor, wise friend, or group, as tools to explore a specific life situation, as guides for daily self-inquiry practice, or as meeting discussion topics. A wise friend or mentor can be of great help in deepening your understanding, and we encourage you to reach out to people you encounter at meetings. Supportive friendships are an integral part of the practice. The questions may bring up shame, guilt, or sadness, or for some, potentially activate trauma. It can be very beneficial to get support set up ahead of time, such as taking the questions only one at a time, timing the work so you can have a chance to engage in self-care afterwards, and so forth. The intent of the questions is to deepen our practice so we can experience relief sooner, not to bring us more suffering. Our path is not a checklist, but is rather a practice in which we choose where and how to invest our energy in a way that is both wise and compassionate towards ourselves and others. We do not complete our journey based on how much we meditate, or how many meetings we go to, or how many written inventories we have completed. The practice of the Eightfold Path helps us develop insight and self-compassion as we begin to look into the causes and conditions that led to our own suffering with addiction. The tools will come to bear the signs of wear and markings of our using them. The path doesn't have an end. Your life, like all of ours, will probably continue to present you with challenges. What the path does offer, however, is a way out of the suffering that our habitual reactions to challenges often bring, and an end to the illusion of escape we try to find in substances or behaviors. It's a way to break our own chains with our own hands. It's a path of freedom. The Practice Renunciation We understand addiction to describe the overwhelming craving and compulsive use of substances or behaviors in order to escape present-time reality, either by clinging to pressure or running from pain. We commit to the intention of abstinence from alcohol and other addictive substances. For those of us recovering from process addictions, particularly those from which complete abstinence is not possible, we also identify and commit to wise boundaries around harmful behaviors, preferably with the help of a mentor or a therapeutic professional. Meditation We commit to the intention of developing a daily meditation practice. We use meditation as a tool to investigate our actions, intentions, and reactivity. Meditation is a personal practice, and we commit to finding a balanced effort toward this and other healthy practices that are appropriate to our own journey on the path. Meetings. We attend recovery meetings whenever possible, in person and or online. Some may wish to be a part of other recovery fellowship and Buddhist communities. In early recovery, it is recommended to attend a recovery meeting as often as possible. For many, that may mean every day. We also commit to becoming an active part of the community, offering our own experiences and service whenever possible. The Path We commit to deepening our understanding of the Four Noble Truths and to practicing the Eightfold Path in our daily lives. Inquiry and Investigation 
we explore the Four Noble Truths as they relate to our addictive behavior through writing and sharing in-depth, detailed inquiries. These can be worked with the guidance of a mentor, in partnership with a trusted friend, or with a group. As we complete our written inquiries, we undertake to hold ourselves accountable and to take direct responsibility for our actions, which includes making amends for the harm we have caused in our past. Sangha, wise friends, mentors. We cultivate relationships within a recovery community to both support our own recovery and support the recovery of others. After we have completed significant work on our inquiries, established a meditation practice, and achieved renunciation from our addictive behaviors, we can then become mentors to help others on their path to liberation from addiction. Anyone with a period of time of renunciation and practice can be of service to others in their Sangha. When mentors are not available, a group of wise friends can act as partners in self-inquiry and support each other's practice. Growth We continue our study of these Buddhist practices through reading, listening to Dharma talks, visiting, and becoming members of recovery and spiritual sanghas, and attending meditation or Dharma retreats when we believe these practices will contribute to our understanding and wisdom. We undertake a lifelong journey of growth and awakening. Awakening Buddha Most of us enter into recovery with one goal in mind, to stop the suffering that got us here in the first place. Whether that was drinking, using drugs, stealing, eating, gambling, sex, codependency, technology, or other process addictions. As newcomers, most of us would be satisfied with simple damage control. We want to stop harming ourselves or others in particular ways. You're reading this right now because you've had enough wisdom to start seeking the end of suffering of your addiction. You've already taken the first step on the path to your own awakening. Everyone who has made the wise intention to recover, whether they are on their path, has accessed that pure, wise part of themselves that the wreckage of addiction can never touch. So many of us have hearts that are tender and worn raw from the suffering we've experienced. Many of us have collected layers of trauma which often led us to seek temporary relief in our addictive behavior. But then, through our addiction, we added more layers of demoralization and shame that hardened around our heart. On top of those layers are the ones we've built for our own protection. All the ways we've run from pain. All the ways we've pushed people away in fear of being vulnerable. All the ways we've shut parts of ourselves off in order to adapt to what often feels like a hostile world. We started to recover when we let ourselves believe in the part of us that's still there beneath all those layers that we've collected and built. The pure, radiant, courageous heart where we find our potential for awakening. Who were we before the world got to us? Who are we beyond the obsession of our conditioned minds? Who are we beneath all of our walls and heartbreak? Despite the trauma, addiction, fear, and shame, there is still a centered part of us that remains whole. There is a part of us that's not traumatized, that's not addicted, that's not ruled by fear or shame. This is where wisdom comes from the foundation of our recovery. If you're at the beginning of your recovery journey, it may seem impossible to access this part of you. But the reason you're here is because you already did. It's because you felt some small glimmer of hope, maybe born out of desperation, that there may be a way out, that things could change if you just took wise action and reached out for help. 
Maybe it feels impossible to have faith in this part of you, to believe that you have had the potential to be someone capable of wisdom and the kindness and ethical deeds, to believe that you can be the source of your own healing and awakening. But don't worry, recovery doesn't happen all at once. The path is a lifetime of individual steps. It's not only the Buddha's example that shows us the way, it's also the examples of people in our recovery communities who have gone through what we have and made it through to the other side. They show us we can, too. So what does the Buddha have to do with recovery? There are two ways in which we use the word Buddha, which means awakened. First, it is the title given to a person named Siddhartha Gautama, a man who lived in modern-day Nepal and India roughly 2,500 years ago. After many years of meditation and ethical practice, he discovered a path that leads to liberation or awakening and the end of suffering. That's why Siddhartha came to be known as the Buddha. The second usage of the word Buddha follows from the first. Buddha can refer not only to the historical figure, but also to the idea of awakening. The fact that each of us has within ourselves the potential to awaken to the same understanding as the original Buddha. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge not in Siddhartha as a man, but in the fact that he was able to find freedom from his suffering. He was human just like us and experienced suffering just like us. He found liberation from it, and so can we. The Story of the Original Buddha to understand the nature of this awakening and what it is we're aiming at, it helps to know something about the life of the man named Siddhartha Gautama. There are many versions of the traditional story of the Buddha. Some of them are very mythical, while some of them are more down-to-earth. It's been said that Siddhartha was a prince, that he was wealthy, and that he was born into privilege, sheltered from much of the suffering of the world. The story goes that young Siddhartha sneaked away from his palace and saw people suffering from old age, sickness, and death. He realized that no amount of privilege could protect him from the suffering. Wealth wouldn't prevent it. Comfort wouldn't prevent it. Pleasure wouldn't prevent it. Despite having a life of ease, Siddhartha still found that he experienced suffering and dis dissatisfaction. He was born with everything, but it wasn't enough. This persistent Dissatisfaction with life, whether dramatic or subtle, was referred to as dukkha in the language of the Buddha's time, a word we still use today. All humans experience dukkha, but some of us, particularly those of us who have struggled with addiction, seem to experience it on a more intense level and with worse consequences. What is addiction but the consistent and nagging feeling of not enough? What is addiction other than being constantly unsatisfied? Siddhartha saw clearly that pain was an unavoidable part of life, and he became determined to find a way to put an end to it. He left his family and tried, for a while, the life of an aesthetic, the most extreme opposite to his previous life of comfort and wealth. He sat in extremely uncomfortable postures, meditating for long periods of time. He slept very little. He ate very little. He even tried breathing very little. He thought that since material comfort hadn't brought about an end to suffering, maybe the opposite of material comfort would. But it didn't. Pushed to the brink of death, Siddhartha abandoned the idea of extreme asceticism and instead chose what he came to call the middle path. 
Siddhartha realized that both extremes of pleasure and denial of pleasure had gotten him nowhere near to liberation. Neither extreme had given relief from his suffering, so he set off on his own to meditate. Sitting beneath a Bodhi tree, he meditated deeply and discovered the path that led to the end of suffering. He looked within himself for his own liberation, and he found it. What Siddhartha found meditating under the Bodhi tree is what we refer to as the Dharma, or the truth. It's what the path of Buddhism is based on. Central to this path is the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, which we'll explain in the next chapter. Siddhartha was called the Buddha, or the one who woke up, because the way most people go through life was thought to be like dreaming or being in a trance. The Buddha spent the rest of his life developing the Dharma into a simple but sophisticated system. He shared it with anyone who would listen, dedicating himself to a life of service to free everybody from suffering. He bucked the trends of his time by letting women and the poorest class of citizens become monastics. Everyone was welcome in his Sangha, his spiritual community. Central to his teachings was that liberation is available to all, to the most broken and oppressed among us, to the sick, to the powerless to those who have lost everything, to those who have nothing left to lose. All of us, even the most addicted, the most lost, can find our way to awakening. Walking in the Footsteps of the Buddha The story of the Buddha may seem far removed from our everyday reality, but his life, both before and after his awakening, offers us a model for our own lives. Probably all of us can relate to the suffering that seems to be unavoidable in life. In some way or another, the signs of aging, sickness, or death have touched us all. We've experienced the truth of impermanence, the highs and pleasure we achieved in our addiction always eventually wore off, but we kept chasing them anyway. We endured other forms of suffering, some of it self-inflicted, and some of it at the hands of others. And we've dealt with the subtle forms of dukkha, the annoyances with others, the boredom, the loss of what we want, the inability to keep what we have, the impatience with life, the refusal to accept what is, and what have we done with these experiences of suffering? Maybe we tried to change them. Maybe we tried to avoid them. Maybe we tried to find something more pleasurable to replace what was unpleasant. It's at this point that most of our stories start to look different from Siddhartha's. And it's this difference that led us to this program. Instead of deeply understanding suffering, we found ways to avoid it or to replace it with something we found more pleasurable. For some of us, that came in the form of drinking or using. For others, it came in the form of sex, relationships, food, self-harming, technology addiction, workaholism, or gambling. And for a lot of us, our stories contain some version of all of the above. Whatever our behavior was, we found it was just a temporary solution that always led to deeper suffering for ourselves and others. We've come to realize that our stories don't have to continue like this. The life of Siddhartha and the lives of countless people we meet in recovery who have found an end to suffering of addiction prove to us that there is another way. We, too, can look back upon our lives and see clearly the path that brought us here. We can examine our own actions and intentions and come to understand how we shape our own future. And we can gain insight into the nature of our own suffering and follow a path that leads to less harm and less suffering. This is a path of practice.
While the Buddha can be an ideal that inspires us, he won't do the work for us. The Buddha wasn't a god. There's nothing miraculous about the path we follow. We believe, and experience has shown us, that good results come when we put the necessary effort into our own recovery. This is a program of empowerment. We take responsibility for our own actions and intentions. The Sangha is here to help us along the way. None of us is expected to become an aesthetic. We don't have to become monks or nuns, and we don't have to meditate for hours each day. We don't have to become Buddhists. But we have found that the path outlined in the Four Noble Truths can lead us to liberation from both the suffering of addiction and the suffering that comes from simply being human. And we trust in the potential in all of us to find freedom from the suffering. The Truth Dharma As people who have struggled with addiction, we're already intimately familiar with the truth of suffering. Even if we've never heard of the Buddha, at some level we've already understood the core of his teachings, that in this life there is suffering. It can be incredibly liberating to hear this said so plainly and directly. No one is trying to convince us or convert us. No one is telling us we have to believe something. No one is sugarcoating our experience. For once, it feels like we're being told the truth. The Buddha also taught the way to free ourselves from the suffering. The heart of these teachings, which we call the Dharma, is the Four Noble Truths. These truths and the corresponding commitments are the foundation of our program. Number one, there is suffering. We commit to understanding the truth of suffering. Two, there is a cause of suffering. We commit to understanding that craving leads to suffering. Three, there is an end to suffering. We commit to understanding and experiencing that less craving leads to less suffering. Four, there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. We commit to cultivating the path. Like a map that shows us the path, these truths help us find our way in recovery. The First Noble Truth There is Suffering Some of the ways in which we suffer are obvious, like hunger, pain, disappointment, and feeling separated or excluded. Some are less obvious, like feelings of anxiety, stress, and uncertainty. We suffer as we struggle with aging, sickness, and death. As much as we want to hold on to these things, people, and feelings we like, we'll always have to deal with separation and loss. There's suffering any time we want these things to be different than they are. The first noble truth rests on the understanding that our lives are unsatisfactory due to the fact that experiences are impermanent and impersonal. Our senses which the Buddha understood to include not just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and touch, but also thinking, are unreliable and temporary, which means that the way we experience and make sense of the world is constantly changing. We suffer because we keep expecting these temporary experiences to satisfy our craving for pleasure or to avoid pain. Many of us have suffered by trying and failing to control our dependencies, habits, and addictions. We've used every kind of willpower, bargaining, planning, and magical thinking, each time imagining the result would be different, and beating ourselves up when it turned out the same. How many times did we promise, just this one last time, then I'm done? 
I'll just use or drink on the weekends and only after work or only on special occasions. I'll never drink in the morning. I won't do the hard stuff. I'll never get high alone. I'll never use at work or around my family. I'll never drink and drive. I'll never use needles. How many diets have we tried? How many times have we said we wouldn't binge or purge or restrict calories or over-exercise? How many times have we looked at the scars on our arms and vowed never to cut again? How many times have we let our wounds heal only to break them open once more? How many limits have we set on ourselves around technology or work only to get sucked back in? How many times have we vowed no more one-night stands, vowed to stay away from certain people and places and websites? How many times have we crossed our own boundaries and been consumed by shame? How many mornings did we wake up hating ourselves, vowing to never again do what we did last night, only to find ourselves repeating the same mistake again just a few hours later? How many times do we attempt to cure our addictions with therapy, with self-help books, with cleanses, with more exercise, by changing a job or relationship? How many times did we move, thinking that our shadow wouldn't follow us? How many promises did we make? How many times did we break those promises? Having suffered and struggled with addiction in its many forms, you've come to understand this first truth as it relates to recovery. Addiction is suffering. We suffer when we obsess, when we cling and grasp onto all those delusions of addiction, all the impermanent solutions to our discomfort and pain. We've tried to cure our suffering by using the very substances and behaviors that create more discomfort and pain. In all our attempts to control our habits, we've still been clinging to the illusion that we can somehow control our experiences of the world. We're still caught in the prison of suffering. In fact, we're reinforcing the walls of that prison, building them taller and stronger as we act on our addictions. Liberation comes when we gain a clear understanding of where our real power lies and where we are throwing it away. This is a program of empowerment. It's a path of letting go of behavior that no longer serves us and cultivating that which does. Trauma and Attachment Injury For many of us, suffering also exists as trauma. Trauma is often described as the psychological damage that occurs after living through an extremely frightening or distressing event or situation. It's caused by an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds our ability to cope and may make it hard to function even long after the event. Trauma can come from childhood experiences or from events that occur in our adulthood. It can be sudden or it can develop over time from a series of events that change how we perceive the world. While trauma frequently comes from life-threatening events, any situation that leaves one feeling emotionally or physically in danger can be traumatic. It's important to note that it's not the objective facts of the event alone that determine how traumatic it is. It's the subjective emotional perception of the person who experiences it. Generally, the more terror and helplessness we feel, and the longer that terror lasts, the more likely it is that it will be traumatized. Attachment injury can be just as insidious and harmful as trauma, and can have the same impact. It's defined as an emotional wound to a core relationship with a caregiver, often caused by abuse, neglect, or inconsistency of care in early childhood. Attachment injury and trauma can impact our recovery and meditation practice in slightly different ways. 
With trauma, we may feel fear, even panic, or distrust when asked to sit in meditation, even when intellectually we know we're in a safe place with a supportive group. It may be triggering to be asked to be present in our bodies and minds, or to focus on our breath. Attachment injury may show up as a hesitation to trust people or a process, as a reluctance to be a part of a recovery group or sangha, or as a core belief that we don't belong. In this case, the nurturing thing to do for ourselves might be to lean into this discomfort and compassionately engage and investigate the stories we're telling ourselves about not belonging. Again, it's key to become aware of the nature of the harm that we carry with us. Trauma and attachment injury may require different ways of feeling safe and supported. You should always do whatever is most compassionate for yourself in the moment, and to seek outside help when you need it. The reason trauma and attachment issues are relevant to suffering and addiction is because of how intense the impact can be. Studies show that a majority of people who struggle with addiction have experienced trauma at some point in their lives. The same system that serves to keep us safe from harm is also the one that fuels the mechanisms of aversion and craving that perpetuate suffering. This system can be overactive when trauma is present because it perceives a very real threat, and the body often responds with feelings of helplessness, fear, and vulnerability. The system can be easily thrown into overdrive when one's life experience screams, You're not safe. Danger, danger. For some people, symptoms of trauma may be increasingly severe and last long after events that originally caused the trauma have ended. Many of us have intrusive thoughts that seem to come out of the blue, or feel confusion or mood swings we can't tie to specific events. Traumatic responses may lead us to avoid activities or, pr or places that trigger memories of the event. We can become socially isolated and withdrawn, and lose interest in the things we enjoy. Trauma may mean we're easily startled, edgy, dysfunctional during sex or other activities, or unusually alert to potential danger. Overwhelming fear, anxiety, detachment, and isolation, shame and anger, may become background states of our activities. There are many other effects of trauma that may be triggered by social interactions, or even during work or meditation, areas that may seem disconnected from the original events. Trauma and attachment issues can certainly lead to the fear, anger, anxiety, and loneliness that are common responses to the experience of life. But at a deeper level, trauma makes it harder for us to cope in general, to form healthy or safe relationships, develop an identity in the world, or to defend ourselves. No two of us will react to the same experience in the same way, but this truth points to the fact that certain kinds of experiences in our past can affect our responses later in life. This is the key to understanding dukkha, and to meeting our experience with compassion and kindness rather than judgment, not only for others but for ourselves, which is an essential part of recovery. Many of us turn to addictive substances and behaviors in a way to cope with our trauma. In some ways, running from the pain of our experiences through our addictions was itself a survival technique, when it felt like we wouldn't be able to live through the pain of our memories. While this may have provided some temporary relief, it did nothing to actually heal the pain of our trauma, and often led to even more pain. Our trauma is not our fault, but healing from it is our responsibility, and our right. Developing understanding and compassion towards the way trauma affects our reactions to events 
or circumstances now is an important part of that healing. Questions for inquiry of the first noble truth. Begin by making a list of the behaviors and actions associated with your addictions that you consider harmful. Without exaggerating or minimizing, think about the things you have done that have caused harm to yourself and others. For each behavior listed, write how you have suffered because of that behavior and write how others have suffered because of that behavior. List any other costs or negative consequences you can think of, such as finances, health, relationships, sexual relations, or missed opportunities. Do you notice any patterns? What are they? What are the ways that you might avoid or reduce suffering for yourself and others if you change these patterns? How have your addictive behaviors been a response to trauma and pain? What are some ways you can respond to trauma and pain that nurture healing rather than avoiding? The Second Noble Truth The Cause of Suffering As people who have become dependent on substances and behaviors, we've all experienced the sense of failure and hopelessness that comes from trying and failing to let go of our fixations. Addiction itself increases our suffering by creating a hope that both pleasure and escape can be permanent. Because substances or behaviors can only give us temporary relief from our pain, our dissatisfactions, and our loss from damaged sense of self, we go through this suffering again and again. Our refusal to accept the way things are leads to wanting or craving, which is the cause of suffering. We don't suffer because of the way things are, but because we want or think we need these things to be different. We suffer because we cling to the idea that we can satisfy our own cravings while ignoring the conditions of the world around us. Above all, we cling to the idea that we can hold on to permanent and unreliable things, things that can ever lead to real satisfaction or lasting happiness, without experiencing the suffering of one day losing them. The effort to cling to impermanent solutions to suffering results in craving. We experience craving like a thirst, an unsatisfied longing, and it can become a driving force in our lives. If craving goes beyond simple desire, which is a natural part of life, it often leads us to fixation, obsession, and the delusional belief that we can't be happy without getting what we crave. It warps our intentions so that we make choices that harm ourselves and others. This repetitive craving and obsessive drive to satisfy it leads to what we know as addiction. Addiction occupies the part of our mind that chooses our will and replaces compassion, kindness, generosity, honesty, and other intentions that might have been there. Many of us experience addiction as the loss of our freedom to choose. It's the addiction that seems to be making our choices for us. In the way we must have food, shelter, or water, our mind can tell us that we must have some substance. We buy or steal something, satisfy some lust, keep acting until we achieve some needed result, that we must protect ourselves at all costs and attack people with whom we disagree, people we envy, or people who have something that we want. This need also leads to an unsettled or agitated state of mind that tells us we'll only be happy if we get certain results or feel a certain way. We want to be something we're not, someone we're not, or we don't want to be who we are. Conditions or circumstances in and of themselves don't cause suffering. They cause pain or unpleasant experiences 
But we add suffering on top of this when we think we need those circumstances to be different. We create even more suffering when we act out in ways that deny the reality of the circumstances and the reality of impermanence. Craving is the underlying motive that fuels unwise actions that create suffering. Questions for Inquiry of the Second Noble Truth List situations, circumstances, and feelings that you may have used harmful behavior to try and avoid. List the emotions, sensations, and thoughts that come to mind when you abstain. Are there troubling memories, shame, grief, or unmet needs hiding behind the craving? How can you meet these with compassion and patience? What things did you give up in your desire to cling to impermanent and unreliable solutions? For example, did you give up on relationships, financial security, health, opportunities, legal standing, or other important things to maintain your addictive behaviors? What made the addiction more important to you than any of these things you gave up? Are there any beliefs you cling to that fuel craving and aversion? Beliefs that deny the truth of impermanence? Or beliefs about how things in life should be? What are they? The Third Noble Truth The End of Suffering It is possible to end our suffering. When we come to understand the nature of our craving and realize that our experiences are temporary by nature, we can begin a more skillful way to live with the dissatisfaction that is part of being human. We don't need to be torn apart by our thoughts and feelings that say, I have to have more of that, or I'll do anything to get rid of that. The third noble truth is that the end of craving is possible. Each of us has the capacity for recovery. We are responsible for our own actions and for the energy we give our thoughts and feelings. This means we have control over our own suffering because the unpleasant emotions take place within us. We create them through our response to experience. We don't need to depend on anyone or anything else to remove the causes of our suffering. We may not be able to control anything out there, but we can learn to choose what we think, say, and do. We come to understand that if our thoughts, words, and actions are driven by greed, hatred, or confusion, we are creating suffering. And so, if we let go of these actions, we can avoid suffering in the future. We can choose to give up the causes of disturbing and unpleasant emotions, knowing that virtuous actions result in happiness and unvirtuous actions result in suffering. This is the true empowerment and freedom of recovery, recognizing that happiness and suffering are entirely up to us based on how we choose to respond to our experiences. Questions for Inquiry of the Third Noble Truth What makes it so hard to quit? What resources are available to help you abstain and recover? List reasons to believe you can recover. Also list your doubts. What might the wise and compassionate part of you, your Buddha nature, say about these doubts? Practice letting go of something small. Notice that the craving doesn't last and that there's a little sense of relief when you let it pass. That's a little taste of freedom. The Fourth Noble Truth The Path The Buddha taught that by living ethically, practicing meditation, and developing wisdom and compassion, we can end the suffering we create by resisting, running from, and misunderstanding reality. The Fourth Noble Truth 
is a summary of the essential elements to recovery, or awakening, called the Eightfold Path. The path is a set of instructions, a practice, and a way to investigate and be aware of the conditioned responses that we cling to. These are the eight factors of the path. Wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. These eight factors can be broken down into three groups. The wisdom group of wise understanding and intention, the ethics group of wise speech, action, and livelihood, and the concentration group of wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Each of us will understand and practice each aspect of this Eightfold Path in our own way. We develop our wisdom, ethical practice, and concentration as far as we can in any given moment. As we come to a deeper understanding of the Four Noble Truths, we're able to bring more effort and concentration to letting go of our greed, hatred, and confusion. Our ethical development will cause us to reflect more deeply on the sources of our unwise actions. The Eightfold Path is a way of life that each of us follows and practices to the best of our current understanding and capacity. The path is not a religious journey and has nothing to do with belief, prayer, worship, or ceremony. It's a guide to practice and a path to a deep experience of the Noble Truths. Questions for Inquiry of the Fourth Noble Truth Understanding that recovery and the end of suffering is possible, what is your path to recovery and ending the suffering of addiction. Be honest about the challenges you might face and the tools and resources you will use to meet those challenges. What behavior can you change to more fully support your recovery? What does it mean to you to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha for your recovery? The Eightfold Path We've found it useful to make inquiry and investigation a normal part of our everyday routine, especially when we're feeling uncomfortable emotions or facing tough decisions. We can take a moment to pause and sit with whatever it is we're experiencing, identify our situation, and just allow it to be there, with compassion and without judgment, and then use the Eightfold Path as a guide to go inward and forward. In any situation, we can ask ourselves, how can I apply the Eightfold Path? It can also be beneficial to use the different parts of the Eightfold Path as an end-of-day reflection. Wise Understanding As people engaged in the world, rather than withdrawn from it, we can use wise understanding to live without clinging, attachment, or craving. By paying attention to our actions and the result of those actions, we can begin to change where our choices are leading. If we intend to act in ways that have positive results, and if we're aware of the true intention and the nature of our actions, then we'll see better results. Better meaning less suffering and less harm. The word karma literally means action or doing. Any kind of intentional act, mental, verbal, or physical, is a kind of karma. Skillful or wise actions strengthen our sense of balance, kindness, compassion, loving, and equanimity. When we act unskillfully or unwisely, when we steal, lie, take advantage of somebody, or cause intentional harm based on our own craving or delusions, it creates an immediate sense of imbalance. It fights with our intention to avoid harming others. 
Karma is determined by our intention and implies to any volitional, purposeful action. The result of our volitional actions may be an increase in our own happiness or may lead to additional suffering. There is no actor apart from action, and there is no action without intention. Unskillful actions leave us less able to meet the next challenge or pain that we are faced with. For example, when we steal, we have to immediately justify to ourselves why our greed was more important than the harm we caused by taking. We must create a cover story, hide our actions, and adjust to the fear of getting caught. Ultimately, if the theft gets discovered, we might have to deal with financial or legal consequences, or face a lack of trust in our community. Similarly, when we're dishonest, we immediately focus energy on maintaining the untruth. We must emotionally carry the potential pain that is caused to others and ourselves if the lie is revealed. This understanding of karma rests on the insight that we are responsible for our own happiness and misery, and that there is a cause to every experience of happiness or misery. From a Buddhist point of view, our choices, which are dependent on our present mental, moral, intellectual, and emotional condition, decide the effects of our actions. If we act with unskillful intention, we cause our own suffering. This doesn't mean that we always have control over our experiences. No matter how skillfully we act, the external world, people, places, and things, might not give us what we want. This does not mean we have bad karma or that we've failed. It just means that we're not in control of everything and everyone. The point is that regardless of what the outside world throws at us, we're responsible for how we respond to it and how we tend to our internal world. At the end of the day, we have the choice whether to go to bed as somebody who acted wisely and compassionately or as somebody who didn't. It's important to note that being responsible for our own happiness and suffering doesn't mean we're responsible for hurts or traumas that we've been done to us by others or by circumstances that are out of our control. Many of us have had very real experiences of victimization, oppression, and trauma through no fault of our own. The pain from these experiences should be met with compassion and care, not minimized or pushed away. In recovery, we learn that we don't have to add an extra layer of suffering to this pain. We can begin to heal rather than let these experiences control and limit us. Without discounting or ignoring the ongoing effect of trauma in our lives, we begin to understand that our reactions when that trauma comes up for us now can change our experience of suffering and happiness. The Buddhist perspective is that our present mental, moral, intellectual, and emotional circumstances are the direct result of our actions and habits, both past and present. How we choose to respond when confronted with pain or discomfort will change our ability to skillfully deal with suffering when it arises. We can also take solace in the fact that we're not alone, that every person has difficult and unpleasant experiences. It's how we respond to pain that determines our experience. Questions for Inquiry of Wise Understanding Think of a situation in your life that is causing confusion or unease. What is the truth of this situation? Are you seeing clearly, or are you getting lost in judgment, taking things personally, in stories I'm telling yourself, or repeating past messages you've internalized? How? In what situations and parts of your life do you have the most difficulty separating desire from need? 
Are there areas or relationships where the drive to get what you desire overshadows any other consideration? Has this changed as you begin or continue in recovery? Are there parts of your life where you are driven to continue unpleasant experiences because you think you must or need to? How is karma, the law of cause and effect, showing up right now? Where in your life are you dealing with the effects or aftermath of action that you took in the past, both positive and negative? Wise intention. Wise intention describes the attitude or approach we take toward ourselves and the world. We can choose non-harming by avoiding actions that have harmful results, detaching from the cravings that seem overwhelming in the moment, and develop a kind of compassionate stance toward both ourselves and the world. Wise intention leads us to stop doing things based on ill will, hatred, violence, and selfishness. It impacts all of our relationships with ourselves, other people, our community, and the world as a whole. Wise intention is deciding to act in ways that produce good karma and to avoid actions that produce bad karma. We start by looking at all the kinds of thoughts that cause us to act in wholesome or unwholesome ways. If our thoughts are based on confusion, fear, and greed, then our actions will bring bad results. If our thoughts are based on generosity, compassion, and avoiding clinging, then our actions will bring good results. Thoughts that are based in loving kindness and goodwill, that are free from the desire or intention to cause harm, lead us to act in a wholesome manner. There may be times when we don't necessarily want to act in a wholesome manner. We may know what's the right thing to do, but just don't want to do it. It's in these moments when we can focus on our intention. Maybe we aren't ready to do the difficult thing, to quit a certain behavior, to set a boundary, or forgive someone for whom we hold a resentment. But we can set the intention to do so, and investigate our willingness in meditation by repeating statements like, May I have the willingness to forgive? May I have the willingness to quit smoking? Or skip that piece of cake? Or stay off the internet tonight, etc.? May I have the willingness to make amends to my partner? The first choice we can make in wise intention is that of generosity. Generosity teaches us how to let go of our self-centeredness, to let go of the clinging to ideas of mine and me. Selfishness or self-centeredness is one of the ways we justify and cling to our addictive behaviors. Generosity comes from the awareness that we're holding on too tightly to our selfishness in a given moment. The karmic result of looking at the world only through the lens of me and mine and what I want leads to loneliness, separation, and dissatisfaction. Letting go of this clinging can be the solution. Without generosity, the mind is confined to a small, tight space. Anything that's not about me and mine is off-limits. During times in our lives when we become dependent, our world becomes focused on satisfying our cravings, on holding on to what we want right now. We get sucked into the reactivity of survival mode, believing that we must have our addictive substance or behavior to survive. Our needs for relief or pleasure consume us, and we become blind to the needs of those around us. We may even begin to see them as threats. We can break out of this cycle by opening our hearts, by being present for and in service to other people. Generosity allows space to respond to those around us. 
to include their well-being in our choices. This can, of course, be a tricky concept for those who struggle with issues of codependency. Generosity does not mean giving of ourselves without boundaries until we are depleted. It does not mean using helping as a form of manipulation to get what we want. Again, what's important here is that we're honest about the intention behind our actions. We try not to confuse intention with impact. Our intention may be to not harm, but sometimes the impact is that we hurt someone. Many of us have experienced this in our addictions. Without intending to, and often without even being aware of it, we've created wreckage in other people's lives. The way we choose to practice compassion and recovery is by being accountable when our actions hurt someone, and by acknowledging this hurt without blame or shame, defensiveness or justification. Generosity allows us to cultivate appreciative joy, which is one of the four heart practices of Buddhism, along with compassion, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Joyful appreciation is simply being happy when someone else has good fortune, happiness, and peacefulness. Generosity leads us to appreciate the happiness of others rather than having feelings of envy, jealousy, or wanting them to be just a little less happy so we seem a little more happy by comparison. We want the other person's happiness to increase, for them to become more at peace, and so we learn to appreciate those things in their lives. In the moment of giving, of generosity, we've let go of self-centered desire and grasping what is mine or what brings me pleasure. We're giving up any ill will or aversion we feel toward the person and toward the world. Instead of creating separation and withdrawal, we're actively fostering appreciation for the closeness and connectedness of the world. This is a joy that's not weighed down by selfish desires, envy, or resentment. It's the purity of happiness for someone else's good fortune. We can choose to cultivate this feeling of joy in the happiness and success of others without the need to compete or compare. It's actually a feeling that's natural to humans, but it's often neglected when our attention is focused on selfish craving. This is the true seat of generosity, delighting in the happiness of others, without needing anything in return. The second heart practice is compassion, which is first of all a willingness to come close to pain, to recognize it, honor it, acknowledge it, and respond to it wisely. This isn't easy, because just as we want to run from or suppress our own pain, we also want to avoid being within the pain of others. Compassion means sitting with our own pain and that of others. It stops the cruelty of indifference. Compassion for ourselves is crucial. Self-compassion is the key to healing the shame and guilt that we often feel as we begin to recognize the harms we cause through our addictions. Compassion is not just offering sympathy and a helping hand. It's also an intention to avoid causing harm to others and ourselves. This is where we can most easily see the difference between skillful and unskillful actions, between wholesome and unwholesome intentions. Cruelty and all the harm it creates in the world comes from a lack of compassion. Cruelty is a desire to cause pain. Compassion is caring about the welfare and happiness of others. Compassion rests on the renunciation of harming living beings and is not only the wish, but also the intention to put an end to their suffering. We need to open our hearts, not just our minds, to all the suffering that is here, that is experienced in the world. 
Compassion is not only a feeling, it is an action. The third heart practice is loving-kindness, also known as metta. These are thoughts that are free from ill will, simply wishing that somebody else be happy, that they be well and free from suffering. It's the choice to include the well-being of everyone in how we act in the world. Metta isn't conditional. It isn't something we offer only people we like. We can have concern and care even when we're feeling our own pain. We can bring metta to mind when we're faced with a difficulty or torn by conflicting feelings about the conditions of life at the moment. Metta doesn't depend on people acting in a certain way, on our feeling a certain way in the moment, or on the result of our caring. It frees us from caring only about the well-being of others when we think it will lead to some outcome. With metta, we don't ask the question, will it do any good to care about this person's well-being? This means that how we think about another person isn't based on their behavior or even on the other person at all. How we think about a person is up to us. And if it's shaped by the practice of metta, then we can care about every person's well-being, even the most difficult and unpleasant people we know. We can honestly hope that everyone finds a way to be happy without causing harm. Wishing this goodwill towards others frees us from the reactivity and anger that can come when we focus on the person's behavior or what we think they ought to do. We can begin to see the suffering and pain that somebody experiences as a result of their actions and care about that pain even if it might also lead to the pain for us or for others. Our wish is that all beings are free from pain and suffering, that they escape hatred and fear, that they are at ease, and that they find happiness. Generosity, compassion, and loving-kindness make forgiveness not only possible but also essential for recovery. Forgiveness rests on an understanding and caring about the pain and confusion that give rise to actions that we experience as harmful. We forgive when we focus on the person rather than the action. And we forgive only in the present when our hurt and anger make us aware that our resentment is blocking our own compassionate and generous responses. In this way, forgiveness is not so much something that we are giving to the person who hurts us, but to ourselves. It's centered more on our own conscience It's centered more on our own conscious intention and how we choose to respond to them. Just as we sometimes act out of fear, greed, or confusion, we see that others do so too. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we accept or tolerate harm. It comes from understanding and accepting that the person causing us harm is doing so from a place of pain and confusion. We extend compassion and goodwill to that person, even as we actively try to end the harm. This may mean creating safe boundaries or removing ourselves from exposure to harm, but we do this from a place of compassion and understanding, not resentment. And it is essential that we extend the healing of forgiveness and compassion to ourselves. Forgiveness allows us to let go of the guilt and shame of our own harmful actions. We remember that compassion is an action. So when we forgive ourselves, we also set an intention not to recreate or continue the harm we have caused to others and to ourselves. Making amends is an important part of forgiveness. 
as we begin to gain clarity about the harm we have caused in our addiction, we commit to make amends for that harmful behavior. We don't make amends for the sake of satisfying some external standard of morality to be forgiven or to get something in return. Instead, we use the process as a way to let go of our expectations and disappointment in others and ourselves. In other words, to let go of our attachment to a different past. One of the central principles of karma is that I alone am responsible for the way my actions impact my current responses to the world. We change our habits by letting go of the past and restoring balance in our relationships. Things we did in the past create patterns of behavior that continue to shape our thoughts and intentions in the present. That process doesn't stop until we change our relationship with those patterns and toward the people that we've harmed. Amends are about restoring the balance in our relationships, not about asking for forgiveness from others. In a sense, it is an action we take to forgive ourselves. When we have come to understand and face the reality of our impact on others, we begin to understand the purpose of making amends. Our compassion practice leads to a desire to relieve the suffering of people we've harmed and a commitment to not cause further suffering. Even if the person isn't a part of our lives any longer, it's possible to acknowledge their hurt and to offer them our goodwill and our remorse. Making amends means we do what we can to remedy the harm or wrong. If that is not possible, we resolve to do some good not as compensation, but to develop our habits in a different direction. When we intentionally take responsibility for our actions, we let go of harmful avoidance and self-judgment and develop a sense of connectedness, peace, and ease. The starting place for amends is a willingness to forgive ourselves and to take the path of reconciliation, not only with those we have harmed, but also with our own hearts and minds. Generosity, compassion, loving-kindness, and forgiveness allow us to experience equanimity as we face pain and discomfort, both in ourselves and in others. Equanimity is the fourth of the heart practices. During our addictions, we often responded to situations that caused us anger, fear, and resentment, with a craving that the situations be different. We gave up and surrendered to the negative experience of life. Equanimity does not mean giving up. It is more a quality of giving in. It is finding peace exactly where we are, regardless of external circumstances. Equanimity allows us to be right in the middle of things, to understand and accept things as they are without needing to escape. When we gave up, we said, I don't care what happens. Equanimity, on the other hand, is being able to say, I can be present for this. It's the acceptance that while there are some things we cannot change, we still have the power over how we respond to them. While we don't always have control over our thoughts and feelings, we do have power over how we feed them. Questions for Inquiry of Wise Intention During your periods of addictive behavior, how did you act in ways that were clinging, uncaring, harsh, cruel, or unforgiving? Toward whom, including yourself, were these feelings directed? How might generosity, compassion, loving-kindness, and forgiveness have changed your behavior? What actions have you taken that have harmed others? Have you formed an intention to reconcile with both yourself and the person or people you've harmed? 
to make amends? If so, have you found a wise friend or mentor that you can go to for guidance and support in the amends process, which is summarized below? What support can this person provide you as you begin the process of amends? Making amends. Have you done something intentionally that you now recognize caused harm to another? Who has been harmed by your actions? Have you honestly formed the intention not to repeat harmful actions and to learn from the experience in future interactions? Have you begun the process of directly addressing the harmful actions of your past? Making amends depends on the circumstance, including your present relationship to the person and the extent to which you can undo the harm caused through direct actions, like correcting a public dishonesty or compensating another for things you have taken that weren't freely offered. Ask 